have you back on a Sunday night. I've always had a special place in my heart for the Sunday night crowd. Ever since we started to go to church when I was about 11, uh, we were always uh, three-time-a-weekers or more. I mean, I think if uh, somebody was cleaning the church and the lights were on, we'd have probably stopped by to see what was going on. We were in church all the time, so uh, that's, that's a good thing, good practice to have. What a good morning this morning was, wasn't it? My, that was exciting. Let's see a family follow the Lord, and uh, I'm just so grateful for that. Ephesians chapter 4, I want to spend a few weeks in the book of Ephesians, uh, starting in verse 17 of Ephesians 4, Paul is explaining what he calls us to do in verses 15 and 16, that is to grow up into the likeness of Christ, to grow into his character, uh, to develop his power, his wisdom, his might, his love, his joy, to, in short, become like him. Now, starting in verse 17, Paul is explaining how we can go about growing into that. What we actually have in these verses is a detailed explanation by Paul on how to change, which is what I want to talk to you about for the next few weeks. Now, this is a momentous undertaking, changing. Uh, have you heard the phrase, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks? That's, sometimes it's hard to teach a young dog new tricks, too. It's hard to get people to change sometimes. And uh, we're going to talk about that, uh, how to change. Look at verse number 17 of Ephesians 4. <coughs> this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and in true holiness. How to change. Father, I pray you'd help us tonight. Uh, you know that my heart is, uh, just as I was working through this, this is such a, uh, it can, can kind of be a complicated passage, but I pray that it would be clarified for us, that the thoughts would be clear and communicated well. May we hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. When you stop and think about it, our entire educational system, all of our social workers of our country, and even our government, what are they out to do? What they're really, uh, really a tremendous number of people spend their time and their profession trying to get people to change. And it's not always a good change. Sometimes it's a bad change they're seeking, but that's what they're after. So how do you get people to change? And by the way, that's what preachers are doing too. I could put them in that list as well. That's what our churches are trying to do too. We're trying to get people to change and be more like Christ. So how do we do that? <clears throat> in verses 17 through 19, Paul gives an analysis of where we have come from. He kind of, if you will, gives a psychology of unbelief. How people's minds and hearts and lives work apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives apart from Christ are marked by futility and vanity. He says exactly that in this passage. 
the behavior of a believer is going to be radically different from that of the unconverted. So Paul reminds his readers of the blindness of lost people. Now, certainly no Christian should let such people influences and ignorant, I'm not trying to be mean, but ignorant to the things of God, people influence how we believe and how we behave. So in our lives, apart from God, we do an awful lot of work, but we don't accomplish anything. And that's where this idea of vanity comes in. Look what he says in verse 17, uh, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So a lot of work, a lot of effort, but nothing is accomplished. Therefore, it's vanity. This leads to verse 19, where it says, who being past feeling have given themselves over until lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, Paul says, eventually we get to the place in our lives where we're given over to these things, these efforts things that cause us to say basically, well, maybe the pointlessness that I experience in my life will not be so bad if I do this, whatever this might be. So we're given over to our work. We're given over to our relationships. We're given over to our distractions, our hobbies, whatever that might be in our life. And today, the devil loves to distract us with all kinds of things. In fact, Satan does not need to deceive us if he can effectively distract us, which is what's happened so much today. So we're on a treadmill of endless searching for meaning and significance. And Paul says, apart from Christ, it's vanity. You're not going to find it. But thank God that Paul doesn't stop in verse 19. By the way, verse 19 is where we have to stop apart from faith. Apart from God, we stop at verse 19. In Becky Pippert's book, Hope Has Its Reasons, uh, she gives a story of a class that she took at Harvard. Uh, she took a psychotherapy class and uh, the professor used a case and he showed through this specific case he had and uh, showed that through psychotherapy, he was able to deduce how this certain patient, this man's problems came from the fact that he hated his mother. And so that his problems in his life stemmed from the fact that he hated his mother. So he triumphantly showed how his particular view of, or his particular uh, uh, act of psychotherapy helped to do this. So Becky Pippert raised her hand and said, asked a question, that's great, uh, that's what's wrong with him now, but in your therapy, how would you help him forgive his mother and get out of the pit that he's dug for himself? The professor said, well, I don't know. That's another department. And that's absolutely true. Because scientifically, the best scientific analysis can do is to tell you what you're given over to. It can only get you to verse 19, and that's it. It doesn't take you past that. It can show you what's wrong with you, but now what do I do about it? Well, that's another department. It is another department. It's his department. And see, apart from Christ, we're not going to be able to solve the problems that we have through psychotherapy and through psychology and all those things. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. The Bible gets beyond what's wrong with you, and it says, here's where you need to go, and here's the power how to get there. And it helps us to change, and that's a blessing. And that's why the, earth, uh, the worldly thinking and worldly philosophies is just a treadmill. It's an ongoing treadmill uh, of futility. And that's what the gospel is. Uh, it can get you where you need to be. Science can analyze where you are, but it can't tell people what they ought to be and how to get there. See, there's no way to get beyond verse 19 without faith. 
without Christ. There's no way at all. We need to know what people need to change into. They need to change into the fullness of the stature of Christ. They need to grow up into Christ. And so that's what Paul does. Uh, when he gets beyond verse 19, he says in verse 20, but ye have not so learned Christ. He says, you're different than that. Uh, you're not in verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19 anymore. You're better because you have not so learned Christ. You are a believer. And so it's actually in verse 22, 23, and 24 that he lays out the model for change. But verse 20 is just too good to skip over, so we're going to look at it for a second. But ye have not so learned Christ. He then says, If so be that you have learned, heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now here's to break that down, what that really means. Christianity is more than just simple information. Christianity starts with an understanding. There's certain things we have to believe or we're not a Christian. Paul refers to that truth that is in Jesus. And a lot of, I think it's interesting because a lot of times Paul uses the word Christ, uh, a Messiah or Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus. But here he says specifically the truth that is in Jesus. And the reason that's important is he's referring specifically to the historical figure Jesus that they knew some of them even by memory the one he's speaking to and so though there are those that complain claim to be believers in Jesus they may say hey I'm a Christian but I don't know whether Jesus was actually raised from the dead I mean I'm not sure whether I believe that Jesus is actually born of a virgin I don't know if that what if everything that the Bible says happened on the cross really happened I don't know if he was literally raised the third day but those things aren't critical. Yes, they are critical. They're very critical for us to believe. And, and I can prove it because when a person talks like that, they're actually turning Christianity into a religion. And let me explain the difference again. In every religion, it doesn't really matter anymore whether the founder, what, how he lived or the, whether the miracles he supposedly did are true or not. Muhammad, uh, the founder of Islam, uh, they... Uh, there's stories uh, how he fled from Mecca and he was in a cave and there was people pursuing him and miraculously God caused a spider web to appear in front of the cave so that his pursuers thought there's no way there's somebody in there because there's a spider web here and so they bypassed him and thus saving him. Whether that happened or not really doesn't make any difference to anyone on the basis of Islam today. Whether the miracles attributed to Buddha happened or not, that doesn't really make any difference in their religion today because they have principles. Here's the things you have to do. You have to do this. You have to do that. Buddhism gives you the eightfold path. Uh, Islam gives you the five pillars. They have all the things that you have to do to give alms and make the pilgrimage and pray so many times a day. Every religion offers a theory. Here are the concepts. Apply this teaching and you're saved. But Christianity says there are certain things that did happen. We have to confess those things. Jesus, the Son of God, became a man, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Because these things happened, therefore your sins have been dealt with for you, and you can be saved. In other words, religion says, save yourself. Here's the teaching, apply it. Christianity says, because of what Christ did, you can be saved, not because of what you do. So he saves me, not myself. I can't save myself. Every other religion says, save yourself. And these are diametrically opposed to one another. So Paul says, if Jesus Christ had not been physically raised from the dead, you're still in your sins. It does not matter what you've done. 
doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've read. doesn't matter whether or not you've got a pile of good works to offer God. doesn't matter. So you have two kinds of religion, really, Christianity and every other. People have asked me that before. There's hundreds of religions in the world. How do you know yours is the right one? No, no. There's only two religions in the world, really. There's Christianity and there's every other religion out there. Because every other religion is due, Christianity is done. There's a difference. So uh, that, that helps us to explain that to folks. So every other religion says history doesn't matter. You just do these things and you'll be saved. Christianity says history does matter. What Jesus did saves you. No, you don't save yourself. So that's the truth in Jesus that Paul's talking about in this verse. If Jesus did not do the things the Bible claims, then you're not a Christian. You can't be because you can't save yourself. And so we, it is very important what the Bible teaches and that we accept those things. And then he gets to verses 22, 23, and 24, and he starts to talk about change. And he uses the words put off and put on. How do we change? Well, there's two parts to the change. There's the putting off and there's the putting on. But in the middle, between the putting off and the putting on, you have this bridge. Look at it. <clears throat> Verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The, the way you get from one side to the other side is through that truth, through that bridge there. You can never have the putting off and the putting on separate from one another. Now, let me just park there for a second because a lot of churches are all about the putting off. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't do, we have a long list of things we don't do. We dress this way. We do, we have a, a whole long list of rules that we abide by. In the Amish religion that I grew up is all putting off. And we just put off everything. We don't have any modern conveniences. We don't have any, basically, if it feels good, we don't do it. And if it is convenient, we don't have it. Okay, we just put off. It's all about that. Uh, and uh, there are churches that put emphasis on that. There's, th by the way, there's a place for putting off. Amen. That's important. That's a part of it. But that's not all of it. And there's a putting off, but that's not all there is. Now, whatever you're doing in your life is because you're meeting a need. There's some need that's driving you and you're given over to it. Well, you can't just put things off without putting something in their place. That's so important. So... This is an example here, a prime example in the Bible of the replacement principle. I teach this to everyone through discipleship, and we talk about this a lot because the replacement principle is so important, and that's really what putting on after putting off is all about, replacement. It, I dabble in gardening, just dabble. Uh, I have a little bit of a garden every year. Mostly I just grow peppers because that's what we're going to have in heaven, hot peppers, and, and that's where I grow. But if I... Only pull weeds, which there's plenty of. As soon as it starts turning green outside, the weeds start growing. But if I only pull weeds, but I never actually plant any vegetables, I'm not going to have anything to show for it. You've got to have putting on as well as taking off. So putting off is good. It has its place, but that's not all there is. Now, on the other hand, putting on without putting off creates hypocrisy. There are some folks who come to church and there's an illusion of them wanting to do the right thing, yet they're still engaging in all kinds of things that they know are wrong. They might say, well, at least I'm going to church. At least I'm doing my part there. I'm putting on. Well, if you look carefully here, uh, there's a two-part system here. 
And by the way, it doesn't say let God take something off and let God put something on. It says you put off and you put on. On the other hand, it does not say make yourself new in the spirit of your mind. It says be renewed. That's a passive tense. So let's just review all three of them together. You don't wait for God to put off and put on. That's our job. So putting off means we change everything we possibly have the power to change. Putting on means we put in its place, we start doing the thing God wants us to do. But being renewed in the spirit of your mind, that's something we ask God to do for us. He does that for us. So you see that balance there? It's not uh, uh, being renewed in our mind is not something we can create on our own, but there are expectations on our behalf as well. I am so tired of churches today that do not preach any personal responsibility of, of, of our life. You don't have to live any certain way. There's just no don'ts ever preached. Uh, I don't listen to Joel Osteen much. I've listened a little bit, but there's never any preaching against sin or, or what you need to do. There's just all uh, a bunch of marshmallow fluff. It takes important effort on our part in obedience coupled with a trust in God working in you. There's a balance. It says so in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in the next verse, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. See the balance there? Yeah, we're to, we're to do our part and then trust him to do his part. There's a synergy here. And we have to find that synergy in our Christian life. If we're totally passive or totally active, and then we'll fail in our effort. If you're passive and said, God will do it all for me, that's not going to happen. Or if you're totally active and say, I can do it all on my own, that's not going to happen either. We're going to have to trust God to help us do it. So the first principle we see is the putting off and the putting on. Putting off means stop doing something, and putting on means start doing something. Everybody, uh, we need to see that this is a two-factored process. Change is a two-factored process. Consider the idea of repentance. Repentance means to turn, essentially, in its truest form. Repentance is basically we're going this way in our life. Repentance means we're turning uh, and we're going now a different direction. But we understand the practicality of if you're going to turn towards something, it means you got to turn from something. To turn is a two-factor process. You're turning from and you're turning toward. It's, it's two-factored. So, but it, it's not that easy practically to keep these th two things together because we often try to deal with the problems of the flesh with just the put-off. Try to stop doing what we're doing. And that's a, that's a good thing. It has its place. Uh, but it's, it's an emphasis that stresses only the negative, and that's where we find often failure. How many times I've counseled with people and how many times I've experienced it in my own life where we say we sinned, oh, we're sorry, we regret it, I'll never do it again, I've learned my lesson, next thing we know, we relapse and we're right back in it again. One of the reasons that that happens in our life is when we put off without putting on because simply putting off doesn't always solve the problem. It's a two-factored process. A few verses later here, Paul, like a good teacher, gives us some case studies. Look down at verse number 28. He gives us an example of this very thing, putting off and putting on. It says in verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. 
last week I was at a counseling conference and, and one of the things we uh, were learning in, in one of the classes was this passage here and they began with the question, when is a thief not a thief? And the whole point of this counseling conference it made a, it was to get us to think about different things and what is your answer to that question? Uh, your answer is probably the same as my gut reaction answer was. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing. Amen? Do we all agree with that? That's not, that's not what the Bible's teaching here. Uh, that's not what the passage is saying. Because a thief who stops stealing is just a thief between jobs. Okay, he's not, nothing's really changed yet. If you just say stop, that's not good enough. A person who is stealing is solving some problem with his stealing. For example, take a young man who has grown up in a housing project. Last week, my daughter Barbara sent me a, uh, a, a clip of a, I mean the uh, audio of a chapel speaker they had. And it was a man that gave his testimony, a tremendous testimony. Uh, he is a pastor in Missouri now, an assistant pastor, but he was a young man that grew up in the projects and he talked about when there, when you grow up in the projects in that area, you have two choices. You have sports or crime. And that's basically the only choices they're given as young men, or at least that's how they feel about it. And he says he couldn't make it in sports, and so he turned to crime. And uh, he joined a gang, and he ended up doing about 18 years, I think, in prison. Uh, he got saved in prison. Uh, he he uh, met his wife while he was there, and they're since married, and he's doing a wonderful work for the Lord. It's a great testimony and example of what God can do. But in our example, a young man hangs out with a gang, and the gang is now his new family, and so gangs do what gangs do. They steal, and he's not necessarily a stealing because he has to steal because he's poor, but he's part of a group. So he gets caught. He stands before a judge, and the judge shows him some Mercy and gives him a second chance and he tells him, don't you see what you're doing with your life? You have to stop for the sake of your future, for the sake of your family. You've got to stop. Put off, essentially is what he's saying. And what happens? Well, if he's scared or if he's talked into it, he might put off for a while, but he's still a thief between jobs. What does Paul say here? Let him that stole steal no more. That's the put off. But he doesn't stop there. So he says but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. To put off stealing, you put on generosity. So this made me stop and think when they asked that question last week. And the answer to that question after uh, we, we went through this passage is this, when does a thief stop being a thief? When he gives. Because there's a two-factored process. Really, a thief... Uh, doesn't only need to stop stealing, he also needs to put on and, and ends up giving. Let me give you another example of this. See, yeah, that doesn't convince me. Well, let's go to Malachi chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but let me read you what God asks when he asks a question. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. That's what God says. And this caused quite an offense. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? The response is, whoa, I didn't steal. I didn't take anything that wasn't mine. And God says in tithes and in offerings. So this is an exa excellent example of what we're talking about here. They, in their minds, they were not a thief because they had put off. We didn't steal. But God says, because you haven't put on, you're still a thief. That's something. So when is the thief no longer a thief? When he gives. When he has put off, when he has put on. 
Paul's trying to say here, you can't deal with our sin and you cannot change with just the put off. Real change is a two-factored process. There's a sense in which put off without putting on isn't only ineffective, it actually makes things worse. Let's turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> Keep your finger in Ephesians, but Luke chapter 11. I'll read you a very unusual <clears throat> passage here. Luke chapter 11, verse number 24. Jesus gives a very short parable. Oh, let's see here. Look at verse number 23. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. What's that talking about there? Well, as I read it, could it be here, it says that they come, so, so the, the man's had the demon thrown out, maybe by Jesus or however, but the demon is out of the man, and he comes in, uh, he comes back to his original place where he was, and he findeth it swept and garnished. Could it be that this is a man who has put off, but he has not put on, is cleaned out, is empty, is clean, but nothing has been put back? And so the demon brings seven of his brothers and the man is worse off than he was in the first place. Uh, it's absolutely vital that we put on after we put off. That's why I always preach three to thrive. That's why I always, that's why we need to be in the word of God. That's why we need to be, uh, we need to replace drinking with the boys with spending time with God's people. That's why we need to replace wicked habits with godly ones. You've stopped watching pornography? That's great. What are you replacing that with? Or you've stopped listening to worldly music? That's wonderful. What are you replacing that with? In the past few months, I've been trying to be more healthy, uh, trying to eat better. Um, I've lost some weight. I'm just trying to be as buff as Dave Miller, trying to get to that point. But one of the things that I've cut out is one of the best things ever invented, potato chips. Or corn, you know, Doritos, whatever, all of those. I like them all. They're wonderful. Chips are great, aren't they? Um, and I haven't eaten a chip in weeks. But I know that it's something, if I, often for work, I'll make a sandwich and chips. That's what I have. So I've replaced it, and now this, this is my chips. Broccoli and carrots. That's my chips. I had to replace it with something. And... Uh, and I was, I was thinking of this illustration. I was thinking, you know, that's not really a good example, but really it is actually a very good example because that's exactly what replacing sin is like. Sin, like chips, has an immediate reward, doesn't it? I mean, sin tastes good. It feels good. It gives us a rush of endorphins. We like sin. Immediately it pays off, just like we like chips, that wonderful, crunchy, salty goodness that makes up a potato chip. Immediate reward. This not so much. There's no reward in this. My face usually looks about like this as I'm eating this. I'm not smiling like I am when I'm eating chips. But this it gives me more long-term goodness than potato chips do. 
And uh, so I know that it's good for me. I know that it helps me be healthier in the long run. And last week, I don't want to brag. This isn't bragging to many of you, I'm sure, because this is not that big of a deal. But to me personally, it's a big deal. I'm 49 years old, and I have never one time in my life run a full mile. I've tried before. I've never done it until last week. I ran a mile. Okay, give me, come on, guys. Oh, thank you. There you go. All right, that's good. I expected loud cheering. My wife's run 5Ks. It's no big deal to her. She's a, she's a runner and been, been good like that. But uh, it was a big deal to me. You don't get that by eating chips all day, though, see? So I'm trying to better myself in that area, but it come, there has to be a replacement principle. So you put off sometimes the things that we physically or fleshly enjoy. Put on with something. Sometimes it isn't as rewarding in the beginning, but we know it's good for our long-term benefit. So we put off. There's something to put off, and there's something to put on. The phrase put off means to strip away. It's like the... Ectasis uh, is when snakes and reptiles shed their skin. They usually do this two to four times a year. And we need to do that to the old man. It's dirty, it's filthy, it's corrupt. And uh, we need to strip him off to put him off when we're converted. And we're, we're to see that he remains put off. Because if we're not careful, we'll be enslaved to our old ways of life. The Lord delivered us from when we see saved us. We don't want to go back to living like that. Uh, it's depravity, and it'll eat into our lives. If it's not kept under control, it'll destroy us. Every day, what Romans 6.11 tells us, do we must reckon that old man dead uh, to sin and uh, ourselves alive to God. But not only is there something to, uh, something to uh, uh, put off or to strip off here, it's something to renew. The lost sinner has a, a mind that has been given over to vanity or futility, but the sinner's mind... Uh, as it gives itself over to those things as empty of value, and at the end, the result is judgment and hell. What the Christian, on the other hand, is to walk with a renewed mind. When the Lord saved us, He made us alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that. And part of that new life uh, involves the renewing of the mind. Uh, the Bible talks about that as we allow the Word of God to uh, renew our minds. The Christian life begins in the mind. When the thinking has changed, our life changes along with it. Uh, when our minds are set on things above, not on the things of this world, our lives will follow the direction of our minds. We need to be uh, mindful of the things that we think. We should strive each day to fulfill Romans 12 too, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we can ever get our minds right, our lives will be right. If we think, if our thinking is on the right path, it'll put us on the right path. If our mind is right, the rest of the life, our life will follow that course. The mind of the lost man will lead him ever further away from God, ever deeper into sin. The mind of the saved man ought to always lead him closer to God, ever deeper into holiness. We must be decisive and take control of our mind. Paul says, taking every thought captive. And that's what we have to do. Has your mind ever wandered and you got to kind of stop it once and oh, stop thinking about those things. We talked this morning about hatred and bitterness. Sometimes we're not careful. We start having negative thoughts about people and our mind just tends to go and, and uh, we've got to take that thought captive like a cowboy lassoing it and bringing it back, hog tying it, getting it in, into uh, order to where we're controlling that. And then there's something to put on. 
We're to strip off the old man of sin. We're to put on the new man created in righteousness and in true holiness. The new man was born in us when we were saved. When he was created, we were given the ability to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. When he saved us, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he made us into a new creature. This new creature loves the Lord and loves the things of God. He desires to serve God. He's been empowered to walk in the will of God. Our responsibility is to let this man out, to let this man live. Now, here's where it becomes very, very simple and elemental, if you want to use that word. How do you make the new man, how do you make him be more controlling of us than the old man or the flesh? Who is going to lead your life? Who's going to be in charge, if you will, of your actions? And this is very, very, very simple. You might come tonight and you think, man, I got to get some deep truths. It's not here for you tonight. I got something very simple for you. It's all who you feed. If you feed the old man, he's going to win. If you feed the new man, he's going to win. You want to know why you struggle and you can't overcome sin and you can't overcome certain areas of your life? You're not feeding the new man. You're feeding the old man. And that's why I, I, I just had somebody the other day uh, doesn't ever go to church, doesn't ever crack his Bible, and he's living a defeated life. He's discouraged and doesn't know why he can't have victory and he doesn't know why. And he wants to do this all apart. And, and I, I tried to explain, you're doing nothing to feed your spiritual side. Nothing. And you're expecting it to be victorious? You're starving it. And if I have two, uh, I'm not promoting dog fighting, okay? Don't believe in dog fighting. But if I have two dogs and I'm going to pit them at the end of the week and I feed one and starve one, who's going to win? The, the emaciated, hungry, dying one's not going to win. The one who's been fed, the one who's robust, he's going to win. And that's the same thing that happens to us in our life. Praise God, we're made partakers in his divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 4. This new man literally is Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2, 20. We need to let him live it out. We're not perfect, but we've been changed. We must actively yield ourselves every day to the Holy Spirit, and we need to uh, allow him to walk in us day by day, Galatians 2, 20 again. We no longer walk in the rags of our sins, we put off the old man of sin and put on the new man who is made in the likeness of God. So I ask you tonight, how are you doing in this business of serving God? Are you victorious or do you constantly face defeat? Are you living a life that's different than the world around you? Can you honestly say that your life displays the Lord Jesus Christ to the world? If you're like me, we struggle, amen? A struggle. It's a daily struggle. And so we need, to, we need to help to get our mind in the right place many times. We need to, God's help to do that. And so it's a constant putting off of the old and putting on of the new. A constant replacement principle. And sometimes, I can tell you, it ain't pleasant. It's not. The easiest thing in the world, <sighs> open up a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. Amen? Doesn't that sound good? Yeah. But uh, what's good for us? And so we apply this to the flesh and to the spiritual. What's good, what feels good and what tastes good and what we enjoy isn't always what's best for us. We need to take those thoughts into captive and we need to be in control. Our, our, our will needs to be in control of our flesh and we need to uh, live that out. So how to change? 
Well, the, the first lesson, the first lesson we took tonight, and we'll talk more next week, but the first lesson is put off and put on. Don't only put off and don't only put on. It's a two-factor process. You put off and then you put on. What you take out of your life, you replace with something new. And uh, that will help us as we uh, try to grow closer to the Lord. Thank you, Father, for that.